Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. G'day. Um, I just uh, had heard that the uh, two Australians from the Bali Nine were executed last night, which I must say I'm feeling a little bit down about. Um, not a cool thing. Um, I guess everybody in Australia is feeling a bit down about it, but uh, let's get have a have a good show just in honour of them, make sure we do something good here. And uh, in that regard, I've been thinking about it. Uh, I was talking to Jess, my producer. We're going to talk about something brand new. Uh, I sort of indicated about something about it last week. It's about giving small business owners and entrepreneurs a go, mostly entrepreneurs. Um, I guess all small business owners are entrepreneurs. Um, today we're going to do something whereby we're going to try and encourage entrepreneurs to do great things in this great country and outshine the rest of the world. And in that regard, what am I prepared to give up for that? I'm prepared to give free time and advice for that. So that's you know, my contribution. Um, and in honour of those Australians who were executed last night by the Indonesians. Let's get to our top five. This week's top five. Global economy, not much is happening in terms of data coming out of that. Fitch, which is the big rating agencies, there's three big rating agencies around the world, Standard Poor, Fitch and Moody's. But Fitch has now downgraded Japan's credit rating by one notch to A, which are five notches below the AAA rating, which is what Australia's rating is and what New South Wales rating is. And all that basically means is that when Japan borrows money, they have to pay a, gr- a higher interest rate to those countries who are lending the money or to those entities lending the money because they are a greater risk. A is a greater risk than AAA. I don't know what it means for you doing your business day to day, but it doesn't mean much for me either. But uh, nonetheless, a bit of data came out. It's relevant. The newspapers will be talking about it for weeks, but uh, we'll talk about it for a minute. Okay, commodity prices. Nothing's happened to the commodity price territory. In other words, we haven't any had any major uplifts in commodity prices in general, and we haven't had any major downgrades. Although I have noticed that petrol prices are climbing a little bit as a result of oil prices climbing. Uh, Petrol prices will be volatile, up and down, but there's always a range, a bandwidth within which petrol prices move in relation to oil prices. Um, I don't think the recent increase in petrol prices is going to cripple the country, but at the same time, they're not continuing to fall, which means we're not getting that confidence feeling and we're not getting that boost from petrol prices being much, much lower. So commodity prices, um, not a great deal happening, although we have had some response with petrol prices going up recently. Inflation. Well, I did say to you last time that um, the CPI, which is the inflation number, CPI stands for the Consumer Price Index. In other words, um, what is the 
average prices of all consumable items in this country worked out mathematically. Have they gone up or have they gone down? That's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what the actual index is. They're interested in has there been an increase in the price, the, uh, sorry, increase in the index. And it lifted by 0.2 of a percent in the three months to March, bringing the annual rate to 1.3%. Now, what's important about the annualised rate is that we're looking to see if that annualised rate is somewhere between two and three. If it's less than two, basically means we're going to continue to stimulate the economy or the, or the Reserve Bank is going to continue to stimulate the economy. That basically means the Reserve Bank is going to continue to stimulate the economy. The, the recent number confirms the Reserve Bank that they're doing the right thing. So what does this mean? I want to spend two minutes on what stimulation, stimulation, <laughs> that's a good word, what stimulating the economy, we're talking about economies here now, okay, stimulating the economy means, um, and I'll, I will have a longer discussion with this in, in coming weeks, but just right now, let me, let's talk about it because it's relevant because that's what the Reserve Bank talks about every single month. So the way the economy gets stimulated in most countries, particularly in this country, is through two policies. One is called monetary policy, which the Reserve Bank has the management of, and their only lever, the only thing they have to stimulate the economy, the Reserve Bank I'm talking about now, is interest rates. The second one is fiscal policy. Now, fiscal policy is run by the government, the government at the time. And the fiscal policy includes how much money will the government go and borrow in order to uh, spend on roads and bridges and all the other stuff, the infrastructure they build. And the second thing is that the government could do with fiscal policies, they can adjust taxes up or down. So if the government's trying to stimulate the economy, they'll adjust taxes down. If the government's kind of trying to slow the economy down, they'll adjust, adjust taxes up. Now, our government has made a clear statement on their position. They have been voted in on a mandate to reduce the deficit. In other words, they don't want to borrow money and create a surplus. Now, whether that's the right policy or not, it's irrelevant. Point is, that's their mandate, which means we are not going to get any stimulation through fiscal policy from this government. A little bit, but not much in terms of growth. So let's not expect too much from the government. So that takes us back to the Reserve Bank. The only lever the Reserve Bank has is interest rates. The question is, at what point does the Reserve Bank, by lowering interest rates, actually stimulate the economy? Now, that's a question I don't know, the Reserve Bank doesn't know, and only the economy will tell us. So when do consumers start to put their hand in their pocket as a result of having a lower interest rate and start spending and spending big to stimulate the economy? To date, the reduction in interest rates has done one thing. Borrowers have actually paid off their loan faster. They've used a lower interest rate to make faster repayments on the loan. And they haven't been using the lower interest rate to go out and start spending at David Jones or Woolworths or wherever it is they might want to spend. So the stimulation from the Reserve Bank is a bit frustrating. Sooner or later, they'll get to a point where people say, okay, I've saved enough, I'm going to start spending. The Reserve Bank doesn't know where that is and when that is. But I'll get into that later at another time, but it's very important for us to understand what this process of stimulating the economy means because that's what it's all about. Okay, uh, moving along. The, the RBA governor, Glenn Stevens, who I have a great deal of respect for, who's been a great manager of uh, monetary policy in this country, extraordinarily uh, conservative man, or at least he appears that way, um, has uh, more recently um, made some statements to the media and, and, and uh, entered into the debate um, about global retirement income systems. Um, what he's concerned about is how people retire on the yields that have been offered by asset classes around the world today. Now, what he's talking about is this. When I retire, I have cash. And with that cash, I've got to invest it somewhere. And that money has to return enough for me to live on. 
generally speaking, retirees don't go and punt their money on shares in the share market. They will go and buy bank stocks or they'll go and buy government securities or they'll go and buy super, super conservative stuff that gives them a, a good return. Now, that was okay many years ago as a as a, a system of investing. But today what the Reserve Bank Governor is talking about is that most of the conservative assets that retirees invest in are returning such a low interest rate, like it's pretty much impossible for retirees to live. A good example is that if you retired more recently and you put your money in the bank, because the Reserve Bank has pushed interest rates so low, the banks are going to pay you around 2% per annum, whereas maybe three years ago, you're getting 5 or 6%. So it's more than double five or six years ago. So if you retired five years ago, you were making less money on your retirement income today because yields, what they call yields, are so low. Now, that's a big problem because 60% of the country are actually have their money in the bank and only 40% have borrowed money. So 60% of this country are earning far less today from their retirement income than they were five years ago, which means 60% of the country are uh, spending far less today than they were five years ago. So you can see what I'm talking about here. It's a bit of a spiral. As the Reserve Bank reduces interest rates to stimulate, so-called stimulate the economy by getting people to go and borrow money, equally on the flip side of it, lots of people are earning a lot less interest than they used to earn and they've got a lot less money to spend and they are not stimulating the economy. So it's a bit of a catch-22. Very interesting argument, discussion. Let's watch this and let's talk about this at a deeper level down the track. But the Reserve Bank Governor has recognised this in his uh, speeches this week. Really important. From Mark's Mind. Mark, we were having a chat last night on the phone. We were talking about the show, what we were going to do, what was going to happen, and uh, we've got this great segment called uh, Mark's Mind, pulling bits of information out of your mind. And we've talked about this before, that, that you, you've had a gutful, basically, of the little that is being done for small businesses in Australia, and not just those who already have a small business, but for those as well who've got an idea, who want to do something with it. You're yeah. saying that governments aren't doing enough, banks aren't doing enough for them as well. So you've had this great idea that, that you are going to offer your time This is something that people would only have dreamed of, to have a one-on-one session with you. And tell us about it. What what, what can you do for people? What do do people starting out in business need? Well, I have to say, Jess, before I say what they need, I have to say why I'm doing it, you know, because people have given me a a, a helping hand, allowed me to have a crack, and I've I've been lucky. I've, I've done some things that have worked. But there are... A lot of people out there who have equally good ideas as I do and who just need a helping hand and some encouragement. Um, a lot of it's about encouragement, um, not to turn them away, but actually to – it's not about investing money into them just necessarily just that. It's about telling me, look, it is a good idea, but what about this? What about that idea? How can we sort of reshape it a little bit? And there is another selfish reason from my point of view is – and it's a broad selfish reason, but the Australian economy – the backbone of the Australian economy, the engine room of this economy, is the 2.4 million small business owners in this country, all of whom started off as an entrepreneur because they got off their butt to do something. They employ 60% of this country. They pay 60% of the consolidated revenue that this government collects that they're supposed to be spending on roads and bridges and infrastructure. They pay the superannuation for 60% of these 
of this economy who are going to retire when they turn 65, take the pressure off the Australian economy so that we, the Australian people, don't have to contribute more tax to pay these people's retirement. That's a big deal. Um, and nobody helps them out. Like, they're underrepresented. They don't have a parliamentarian who's interested in them. Um, they're never spoken to by the government when the governments are going to the elections. No one really talks to them. And everybody just takes them for granted. And by the way, they don't whinge either. They're out there doing their best because there's no time to bloody whinge. They're, they're, they're too frantic getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to get the books done so they can pay the bass. And they collect the, the government's tax for them as well. I mean, like, seriously, these guys should be getting getting paid for doing this. It's a big effort. So I think it's incumbent on someone, and I know lots of probably people other, do, other people do it, but I think it's incumbent on someone, and I'm going to do it anyway, we're going to do it, we're going to start to try and encourage small business owners and entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs is not a dirty word. Entrepreneurs are absolutely critical to every nation. There is the OECD countries recently had a long discussion about how important it is to stimulate entrepreneurs and small businesses in their country. Now, that's OECD nations. Australia's got to get on with the program and start doing what everyone else is doing. The US are recognising, even countries like Turkey are starting to talk about how important small business owners are in their nation and their national economy. Now, I don't know where our government or and every other institution in this country gets off by just taking our entrepreneurs for granted. And you know what really bugs me? Like, it gets right in the back of my neck. It pisses me off, deluxe, is that there are now TV shows which actually put the knife into entrepreneurs. That show that's on Channel 10, I think, at the moment, and I can't say I've watched it too often, but the few times I have watched it, I feel like vomiting after it, where they're just ripping in to these entrepreneurs, getting up there, having a crack. These guys have got to get a whole lot of courage to stand in front of a TV camera. I mean, that I don't know if, if most people who are listening probably haven't had the experience of having to stand and present in front of a TV camera. It's bad enough to present. It, it, what's worse is actually standing in front of a television camera with lights and all that sort of stuff on you, and you've got a couple of minutes to present your whole lifetime dream. And then you're sitting in front of all these people who are judging you. Now, judges is the wrong word. It should be encouraging you, not judging you as to, you know, the quality of your staff. Or And what's worse, what it really gets in my throat, is where they not only judge them, then they start to destroy them. They start to carve them up because they've got a checkbook behind them, which no doubt's not their checkbook. It'll be the production company's checkbook or the broadcaster's checkbook. It won't be their own money. And then they start to carve them up with this position of power. They sort of say, well, well, you think your business is worth 500000 Well, I think it's worth 100000 and I'll give you 50000 because I want 50% of it. And by the way, you'll be working with me for the rest of your life. Well, like, that's a no-brainer. Anyone could do that. What they should be doing is saying, listen, it, it, look, I reckon it's worth 100000 You reckon it's worth 500000 If you get to 500000 in the next three years, every year I'll give you an extra 50000 But by the way, I'm going to help you get there. That's the sort of process I think should be happening. It's about tone. It's about content. And it's about encouragement. So I, I think that would surprise a lot of people, Mark. I think that the shows have really become, it's like a sport. It's that entertainment of cutting people down. But I don't think people would expect you, Mark, to say, well, hey, actually they need some encouragement. I, I think when people think of, of really successful entrepreneurs, they think cutthroat. But you're, you're saying the opposite here. You're saying, no, we need, we need to back them. Yeah, we need to back them. And it shouldn't be. And it's, it's not being ruthless towards these people. I mean, it's actually, you know, wa- walking in lockstep with them and helping them if they've got a good idea. But by the way, Jess, it's, it's equally important to say, listen, I don't think the idea is very good. You've got to be honest to them. Yeah. 
But at the same time, if it is a good idea and there are strands of something that you can develop, and if you have the ability and or the skill to do it, I think it's incumbent upon you to do it. And you might not want to invest any money, but at least you should try and mentor them or give them some some help and ask them the right questions. And, And I think it's all very well for me to stand here and talk about it, but we're going to do something about it. Fantastic. Let's get them in. Let's get them in, Mark. What are, what are we going to do? How can we set it up so that well, uh, we can get the best pitches in here? Well, I reckon, I reckon what we should do is make an offer to people who are listening to this podcast that if they or they have a friend or they know of somebody, um, they get their friend to put up on YouTube and uh, a, a pitch, a pitch saying what the business is about if you want to call it your mission statement, but please don't because I hate that word, but uh, what your pitch is about, what your business is, um, how far into it you are, what you need from me, uh, are you looking just for money, how much money are you looking for, what do you think the business is worth, what's its future, why is it unique, etc. cetera. Um, put it on YouTube, then send the YouTube link to me at mb at markburris.com.au or put it up on Twitter to my Twitter handle, which is at markburris, um, and Give me that link to YouTube. We'll look at the link um, and we'll choose someone every couple of weeks to come in and pitch and we'll do it. We'll get a cameraman in here and we'll we'll film it and uh, we'll become uh, Mark's Tank. Now, let's call it – I think last week we said let's call it the fair deal. Fair deal, fair go. Yeah, fair deal, fair go is good. Yeah. I like fair go. Yeah, fair go. Fair go. Um, you know, that I, and, and actually you can dial in and have a look at these people. And now over time what we could do is we could start then to migrate it into – running a crowdfunding business whereby we can ask or offer people who are listening to the podcast or watching the watching the podcast can actually come in and say, look, I wouldn't mind investing in this guy's business and I bid a thousand bucks. And they can get small bids. And equally, I think we should go, I, I don't mind doing this, but we should go and tap Telstra and talk to NAB and talk to St. George and say, okay, what sort of packages, startup packages can you give these small business owners to um, encourage them, and I know Telstra are right into this, encourage them to be good business owners, quality business owners, and more importantly, successful business owners. And there are a lot of organisations who actually would genuinely like to help these people, as well as they have an interest that they're trying to get you to buy something from the future. That's okay. The system should be symbiotic and everybody should be feeding on each other, not just the system feeding on small business owners. The small business owners should be feeding on the system. So what I, my role, our role might be just is to bring the system together with the entrepreneurs right here on this show and let them all try and work at how they can get the best result from each other. Let's ask them too. We should we should be getting we should be getting NAB, we should be getting Comsec, we should be getting uh, Telstra in to say, well, what can you do for small business? Yeah, well, like a small business, imagine a small business owner walking into Office Works and you know being faced with a five thousand dollar bill. That's a lot of do a lot of dough, you know. Like I mean. You know, a lot of people might think, oh, well, you know, but it's not much. It's a lot of money and probably most of them put it on their credit card and then they're paying it off and then they're trying to meet the rent and all those other things. Um, so let's find out what Officeworks can do for these people. And I don't know, like they may not want to participate. Cool, that's up to them. But if they do, I don't mind giving them a plug. It's no big deal for me. I don't make any money ever. So let's put the, let's put the dudes together and uh, let's see who's genuinely out there who wants to help small business owners and entrepreneurs. There should be a university of entrepreneurialism, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I mean, it's been a dirty word for so long now. Well, entrepreneurs, a large number of entrepreneurs today are not necessarily risk takers. They're just people having a go and wanting to improve their lot, get better at what they, uh, they would otherwise have to do if they're working in an environment where they're getting paid a salary. That is an important change in the structure of society today. 
We're not talking about what went on in the 80s and 90s, you know, you know, 20 years ago. We are talking about real quality people who want to make a difference. And, Mark, just to, just on a final note on that, so for people who are sitting there thinking, God, my idea is not good enough, what, 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 what would you look for in their pitch? What's going to make them stand out to you if they're sending it in? Well, the first thing, Jess, is I'm not actually looking for an expert pitcher. So I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. I just want someone to articulate their idea. And by the way, even if you don't articulate, well, I'm going to tease the idea out. That's probably why I need to see them in front of me so I can get an understanding of their body language. They might be just shy or they might be scared or embarrassed or just young or inexperienced, but they still might have a bloody good idea. So I just want to tease the idea out. And so this process will be about teasing the idea out and actually, that'll be done by asking questions. So we always talk about mentorship. I'm not here to answer questions. I'm here to ask questions. So I'll ask them the questions that I think they need to be asked in relation to their great idea, their entrepreneurial idea, or the end or the small business that they're currently uh, conducting. I think it'd be pretty cool. That'll be awesome. Entrepreneurs Inside. Mark, you were just talking surprisingly to me, actually, that the most important thing for someone who's starting out in business is to actually for them to be asked questions. So it's not them coming to you and asking questions, but they they need to be asked questions. And last week you shared with us that uh, Kerry Packer asked you three questions when you were uh, trying to get him to invest in, in Wizard. And you, you shared the first question. What was the second question that Kerry asked you? Actually, Kerry's second question was a very interesting question, Jess. Um, his question was, son, have you ever failed in business? Which I thought was an unusual question to be asked um, because failure usually would be a ba <laughs> you're gone. Um, and I wasn't quite sure how to answer the question because I did not know that Kerry was a counterintuitive style question and or thinker. So I did, uh, um, well, my mindset um, uh, was to do the obvious thing was to tell him what I thought he wanted to hear because bear in mind he was about to invest in my business and um, and I was a lot less counselled then than I am today um, and I said, no, I haven't. Now, the, the truth of the matter is I had not failed in business. I mean, I've made investments that haven't done so well. I've bought shares in the share market, haven't done well. In fact, lost money on the shares in the share market for all the usual reasons. But uh, I did tell him the truth. But at the same time, my um, motivation was not quite the motivation I think that Kerry was looking for. Well, Kerry's answer or response to that was, well, what good are you to me then, son? Um, Now, the reason why he said this to me, and I found this out later on, was that in his opinion, if you haven't nearly failed or, or in fact, if you have failed um, and been able to recover, then you don't really know what it's like to fight your way out of, out, of the, out of the system. In other words, it's all very well for me to go and pitch to him all these great ideas and have a whole lot of energy in my process and be very, very um, motivational in the way I do it and uh, um, speak with a, with a great deal of... Um, you know, excitement, et cetera, and pitch, 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 pitch. But it's another thing to actually execute. What Kerry was getting to is have you got the ability to execute because one thing is going to happen for sure is those things that you're putting to me will change or the assumptions you're making about the future will change because, you know, we don't, try, we don't control the economy. We don't control how people feel, confident or otherwise. So um, 
what he wanted to know was, did I have the ability, the strength, the courage, the, you know, the backbone, the fortitude to carry on when the environment changed? And the environment does change. So he knew that much. What he didn't know was whether I had the ability to go through with it. So could I prosecute the same assumptions in a changed environment and get up every single day and continue on and never, ever give up? That's what he wants to know. And only people who have nearly failed or have failed and recovered know that about themselves. So I guess what he was asking me, Jess, is do you know yourself? And if you do know yourself, tell me the answer to this. And it's very important for us to know ourselves when we go into business. A lot of people go into business and they kid themselves. They might have a great idea, but they don't know themselves. They, don't, they think that they can do all these things. And um, there's a big difference in the execution when you get confronted, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, you're thinking about all the things that are going to go wrong or are going wrong or could potentially go wrong. And you get up and you say, it's all too hard. I'm not going on with this anymore. I'm over it. I'm going to go back to my normal job, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But what an entrepreneur and a, or a successful entrepreneur needs to do is know him or herself and whether or not they have the ability to trudge through this stuff. And that's what Kerry's question was about. Have so you ever been on the edge? Strength of character as well. is Strength it, of character. We're talking, and what we're talking about here is virtues. Um, you know, good old-fashioned virtues. Nothing you learn at university is not about PhDs or it's, you know, stuff we have stamped on our DNA. It's the sort of stuff that, you know, we say so-and-so was tough as teak. I mean, you look at Tuvi playing rugby league for Manly, the guy was as tough as they get because he never, ever gave up. He was four foot high, and, <laughs> but he would tackle blokes ten foot tall. That is tough and he would never, ever give up no matter what. And I think that's what Kerry was after. He was after that toughness. And it's funny, you know, I used to have conversations with Kerry. He used to talk about boxers and footballers and all these sorts of people and who was the hardest. He would always ask people like Ron Coote. I- I've sat there with him when he's done it. You know, he used to ask people, Ron, who was the toughest bloke you ever played football against? Kerry was into finding out who had strength of character. Was He didn't mean like who had the body of iron. He was looking, who had strength of character? And irrespective of the change in the world, the Internet of Things, all the change in the world, character still stands head and shoulders above the rest. And if you don't have character, I don't care how skilled you are, what your technological ability is, strength of character is the critical thing that gets you through the tough times. And anyone I know who's been successful has that strength of character as well as all the other stuff. So that's Kerry's second question. That's what he was after. Um, I didn't realise it. I thought I didn't realise he was a counterintuitive questioner. I now know it. And fortunately, you know, we did get hit, by the way, in 2000, which is the year after we did the investment with Kerry, um, um, Australia had a tough year and had a tough couple of years because they introduced the GST in June 2000, which sort of killed the um, house building industry for quite a while because everything cost 10% more. And, um, and we, then we had the changeover at the end of uh, 1999 into 2000. So that was a, a tough period and, uh, you know, we had to battle through those periods and then we got to a stage where we nearly ran out of money. Um, and, you know, fortunately we didn't because we were able to recover, but it took a lot of, not just me, but tough people in my organisation and, you know, our success to some extent um, came about as a result of being able to tough out those days and then take that toughness into the good times as well. So the really important question, very simple question he asked me, had a lot of layers underneath it, which he didn't explain to me until later on. And to be frank with you, it wasn't until later on I actually experienced this process I understood the purpose of his question. So a lot of soul searching for people. It's, it's, it is simple, as you said, but it's, it's really digging down into who you are, yeah. what your makeup is. Yeah, I, I, it's, you know, like, if you want to know what it takes, 
to be good at business, to, to survive in business, this is one of the questions you've got to ask yourself. There's no point saying, oh, yeah, I've got what it takes. You know, that's all fucking bullshit. You know, you've got to ask yourself specifically, have I been through the times where it's so bad that I still survived? It doesn't matter whether you make mistakes on the way through, but have I got that ability to hang in there? And uh, sportsmen display this sort of stuff all the time um, and we underestimate the importance of sportsmen in that regard. So that's a second question that, you know, I, I think everybody should ask themselves and answer honestly. I think it's sort of appropriate time to actually just raise something I think is really important, like in, in analogy sense. Um, as we all know, Mayweather's fighting Pacquiao this weekend and uh, both are brilliant sportsmen and great fighters. But it takes me back to, and I'm a mad boxing fan, but it takes me back to Ricky Hatton who's fought both of them and uh, lost to both of them and lost to one, I think, round 10 or 9 or 10 and, um, and then to Pacquiao, he got knocked out in the second round. But one of the things about Ricky Hatton, he's a good example of what I'm talking about here, this toughness. Ricky Hatton wasn't the fastest puncher in the world and Ricky Hatton wasn't the most skilled fighter in the world, but I reckon he's one of the toughest blokes, pound for pound, pound that's ever fought. Um, he was, he would walk into a punch and he'd step back and he'd walk straight back in again. He would never, ever give up. Um, and Frazier was some, a similar sort of fighter, smaller than his opponents, didn't have the reach, but he would just keep walking up to them. And that's a, a good boxing analogy for what I'm talking about here. And of course, you know, Ricky Hatton will be now sitting back in Manchester, um, probably at the local pub, um, having a beer and, and uh, with a bit of luck, by the way, they probably flew him in Las Vegas because they bloody should fight him in Las Vegas to watch his fight for free. But it, let's hope he's sitting in the front row for that matter to watch uh, Mayweather and Pacquiao because out of the three, I reckon Rick, Ricky Hatton's got what it takes. Ask Mark. Tweet Mark with your questions at Mark Boris, M-A-R-K-B-O-U-R-I-S. Mark, we've been sent tons of questions, people uh, wanting to know some answers to the things that are bothering them every day. This is the first one. Why does my bank teller hassle me with questions about what I'm saving for, what I do for a living, if I'd like to book a meeting to talk about my superannuation? All I wanted to do was make a deposit. They drive me crazy. That sounds like a question from Jakey over here. <laughs> is that right? Is that from you, Jake? Sure is. Okay. Well, look, it does drive me mad. Um, but let's have a look at it from the bank teller's point of view. Bank tellers earn a wage and they get incentivized to sell other products and they get a bonus for doing it. In fact, sometimes part of their um, performance rating, which is the thing that determines whether they get a pay rise or not next time they go for a pay rise, and these people aren't generally speaking highly paid people and they're, like all of us, are ambitious and want to make more money, um, they get points or rated based on the number of referrals that they can get from someone who comes to see them face-to-face. So, Jake, they're sort of doing their job, mate, but it is a hassle. And the reason the banks as an institution are putting pressure on their bank tellers to introduce you, Jake, to another uh, band of products and or services the bank might sell is because the banks themselves have pressure to grow their revenue and their profitability in order that they can give the returns to their shareholders. So, the whole process is around profitability and money, money making, um, and it is a hassle for you. Um, but I, my view on the on, on the world is depending on how I feel on the day, is either tell them I'm not interested, or let them do their job and uh, you know let them tick a few boxes and say that they made the approach to me and that maybe one day helps them Jake to get a pay rise. And uh, by the way, they might become your best friend. And next time you line up and you take a ticket out of that stupid machine that you have to line up to get, they might just call, hey, Jake, come over here, you're straight up, mate. 
because you're one of the guys that helps them get their performance up. Does that make make you feel better, Jake? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> but it is a pain in the ass, I know. Yeah, it is a pain. It's it's a sales job, isn't it? Yeah. Tellers have turned into sales. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing you say there too, by the way, because there is a lot of discussion at government level um, and the financial planning industry level as to whether or not these people should be allowed to do this. This has been a huge discussion, a huge debate, and... The government at one stage, both governments at one stage, were talking about carving this out of the legislation, in other words, saying that a bank teller could not do that. Now, of a more sinister point, from a more sinister point of view, and it's way, way beyond where Jake was because Jake is no way a sinister guy, but um, the sinister position is that the bank lobby in this country is so powerful, like so powerful, that they actually managed to keep that ability to sell you other products in in so that they didn't have to go and get every one of their bank tellers licensed to end or put them under some sort of other regime. So, you know, that's just to show you how powerful our banks are. But, you know, really at the end of the day, I, for me, I mean, I've got to say, well, it's more of a hassle than misleading because they're not actually giving you advice. They're just sort of saying, are you interested in this product? Would you like to make an appointment? They're not saying, hey, Jess, I reckon you should have this. And I, I, therefore, I'm not too worried about it. Jay, come on. That's actually what happened to me. I came in and basically said, I'd like to make a deposit. And they said, oh, we have a new account. Are you interested? It's got a you know, 2% interest rate. And I said, well, what do I have now? And they said, well, we have 4%. I was like, well, why would I change? <laughs> well, what, what's probably, going on? Well, that's the issue. Are they going beyond their authority? And that, that, is, that is a problem. So you're, going to get, you're also going to get the avaricious sort of reckless bank teller, yeah. by the way, who's going to say, hang on, I, all I want is bonuses. So I gave you one side of the story. The second side of the story is what we've got to do is protect people. You know, you're smarter than the average bear, Jake, so you didn't cop it. Oh, thank you. Um, but there will be some people who are wood ducks and would actually fall straight into that and uh, say, oh, yeah, okay, I'll take the 2%. And all of a sudden they just copped it in the neck. But that's for the banks to manage. That's their supervisory role, the bank as an institution. And, uh, you know, hopefully people report these things. By the way, if you've got something like that, some thing that's happened to you like that, let me know. We'll talk about it. The next question, Mark, is uh, this person's thinking of moving to a self-managed superannuation plan from an industry fund. So coming from an industry fund, heading towards self-managed super, what should they be looking for? Okay, uh, big question, like like a big deal today, self-managed super funds. Uh, first and foremost is uh, you've got to understand the cost of running your own fund or managing your own fund, no matter whether you're taking it out of an industry fund or your work fund. Um, Generally speaking, the rule of thumb is if you've got more than 250 grand in your super, then it is worthwhile from a cost-benefit analysis to transfer from the fund into your own managed fund. That basically means you're going to manage your, your, own, you know, your own assets. You're going to buy stuff and sell stuff. So the question is, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> That's first and foremost. Secondly, do I have a, or do you have a financial advisor who's going to manage the fund for you and is he or she competent? Um, and you must understand the cost, so that, you know, there's a setup cost and then there's compliance costs every year that you've got to pick up. Um, I, I think you should also understand too what the industry fund charges you as an annual fee. Now, industry funds don't pay commissions and there's no commissions involved. And industry funds, generally speaking, are somewhere between less than 1% per annum to manage your, your assets you have in your super. If, as a rule, if you go outside of that and go into a self-managed super fund environment and get a financial advisor, I think you'll find you're going to be paying more on an annualised basis in terms of fees. 
And the reason why you're paying more is because the individual doesn't have the economy of scale like the industry fund does. So you, what you've got to get is a better return. But you should be getting a better return. You should be. Should be. In theory. Mm. Um, so it comes down to the net return after the, the fees. 250000 doesn't sound like a lot of money to have in your super. So you're not talking about high flyers necessarily. This yeah. is this is what, you know, maybe a couple has to live on for the rest of, you know, their 30 years yep. that they're going to be on this earth. So so really self-managed could be for a lot of people. It's it's not just people with a lot of cash. Correct. It's, it's not – you're right. It's not a lot, just for people with a lot of cash. Um, I, and I would like to say to you, and there was an article in the papers this week about this um, – uh, and I, I've certainly talked about this before. Um, generally speaking, uh, today, in order to have a lifestyle that is equivalent to earning sixty grand a year, you need to have a million dollars worth of investable assets on the day you retire. Wow, one million. That's that's frightening. So, two hundred fifty thousand is not enough. So, what today? Standing still, we should be trying to um, build up our fund, whether it's self-managed or run by industry fund or whoever, to a million dollars just to have 60 grand a year, which is not a lot, okay? Um, and there's all sorts of implications too around uh, whether or not you get pensions and all those things on top of that. But just to have an average lifestyle, you need to accumulate a million bucks. So don't just say, I want to be a self-managed super fund for the sake of it. It's got to be to get your 250 to a million. And you know, the quandary we have is, oh, well, should I start getting aggressive because I'm, I'm way under? Because um, if you're aggressive, you know, the risk of losing all the money is equal to the risk of making a lot more money because that's how aggressive portfolios work. Um, you know, you could could be in trouble. Um, maybe you need to actually start putting more money into your fund. That's generally speaking probably the safest way, just uh, contribute more money to your fund, um, which means you've got to work harder or more or more often or longer hours or whatever it is to get a second job. Because, you know, we need to have our sights firmly set on how much I need to have to retire comfortably. And right now that number's a million bucks. Uh, just on that, so say in, in, in my position, should I be looking carefully at super now or should I be focusing on paying off my mortgage? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I th- Look, the most tax-effective way you can invest in this country today is to pay your mortgage down. So you get a tax uplift as a result of paying your mortgage off faster because when you sell that house, that house is not subject to capital gains, assuming that's your principal place of residence. But equally, um, you could be putting all your eggs in one basket and the day it comes down to what that asset class that you're reinvesting in, whether it's your mortgage or super, which is generally speaking shares and or a little bit of property. Um, when you retire, it, the question comes down is what is that asset class doing at the time? So on the 65th birthday of the day, you want to cash everything in, if that's the day, um, is the property market going to be up or down? The property market could be down, in which case, you know, your theory of paying your mortgage off hasn't helped you. No. Um, and the share market might be up, which means you should have put more money into the stocks. So we don't know the answer to this. So it's about getting a diversified portfolio and having right the right weighting in all the classes. So therefore, the decision to... Um, just pay my mortgage off with my spare money and not re- uh, put more money into my super other, uh, outside of the 9% that I'm putting in at the moment, the question doesn't become which is the most tax effective or which one, the ma- one makes me the most comfortable. It should be a little bit of everything just to take advantage of the way stocks and or, or and, and property and any asset class um, reacts in volatile environments. 
because it's it's whole thing's about timing. And what are the asset classes you've been investing in for the last 30 or 40 years? What are they going to do on the day you retire or the year you retire? So good example, go back to 2008, 2009. A lot of people retired. A lot of people had their money in superannuation in equity markets. The equity markets fell apart. We're down by 60% in some cases. Those people couldn't retire. So they left their money there and they continued to work because they could not afford to go and cash out. Now, fortunately, the markets recovered and those people are in, in much better position today. But that could have inured for a long time. That, that, that could have gone on for a long, long time. could have gone for 10 years. No one knew at the time. So there's a good example of how markets react. Um, and so therefore, you just got to have a bet in both categories, equities through super and your mortgage. Last question here, Mark. So I'm paying a mortgage on my family home. I'm contemplating stretching myself for an investment loan. Is now a good time or should I wait for interest rates to fall again potentially next Tuesday? Um, I don't think the interest rate going up and down is a decision-making um, criteria in order to invest. That's the first thing. I think I said last week the lower the interest rates are, generally speaking, the higher the house price is, and which means the more you borrow, which means the less upside you've got in the future in terms of the price of the property going up. Um, so next Tuesday, I don't think it's got any relevance to anything. I think the really important thing in this question, Jess, was the word stretching. Mm-hmm. I don't like stretching. Um, stretching has risk associated with it. Um, maybe what you should be considering is I will make the investment in another property or more money into my super when I'm comfortable and I have the ability to sustainably invest in that asset class, whether it's property or super. Not I'm stretching to do it because um, stretching requires um, a great deal of um, faith in your capacity to continue doing whatever it is that you are stretching with. In other words, working longer hours or you're reducing the amount of money you've got in your pocket to pay for discretionary spends, things like school fees or changes, people getting sick, etc. So I think a stretch is not really a good way to make a decision about investing. Looking forward, this is the week ahead. Okay, what's coming up, Jess? So uh, next week, the most important thing is next week, next Tuesday, the RBA meets like they do the first Tuesday every month, 2.31pm, you're going to get a, a, a report from the Reserve Bank Governor. It's going to be one page. He's going to talk about whether or not he's going to put interest rates up or down, leave them where they are. Uh, to be frank with you, if they go up, highly unlikely. To stay where they are, probably a 50-50 bet. To go down, the market is saying that there's more, more likely than not that rates will be reduced next Tuesday. What does that mean for all of us? Well, it'd be different if it was the first rate reduction going back two years ago when there was a part of a series, in which case you probably could have made some money because you could have got into the market. Um, if this isn't the last rate reduction, um, it's going to be the second last. Uh, so, you know, so we're not going to get a whole lot of rate reduction. So I don't really think the rate reduction per se is going to be a big deal um, if it does happen. I'm more interested to hear what he's got to say as to how long these low rates are going to stay for. And... Um, and more importantly, what are the indicators I should be looking for in the future as to when rates start to rise again? Because that's where the real pressure in this country is going to be applied. I mean, he's built, built himself in a bit of a corner at the moment. Um, if the economy picks up and starts to do very well, he's going to be forced to push rates up. Now, a lot of people are borrowing money at a very low rate and they're paying high prices for houses because of the low rates, So, which means they're borrowing more money. So there could be an inflection point coming up. And I did say last week that the, everybody, when we lend money, we assess you on two 
2.5% as if there's there's been two, uh, 200 base points or another 2% added onto your rate, current rate, in order to cover ourselves and to build some buffers around um, our our liability and, and or your ability to continue to pay. But irrespective of that, when the rates do start to increase, people's confidence are going to really get shot. So because, um, by the way, if you're paying 2% above the current rate and if rates go up by 25 base points, you'll be paying 2.25% above where you're paying today. So it's a big increase. So my, my, my view on this is uh, next Tuesday is not all that earth-shattering in its result. Um, I, my gut feeling is that he won't change rates, but it doesn't matter what my gut feeling is. He'll do what he'll do. I don't think it, it's a big event other than what he's got to say for the future. Because now what we're going to start looking to in the crystal ball is what is in his language, what is um, in his tone, what, is it, what do we now think he's going to do for the future? Because the mo- more likely thing after next week is rates stay steady and then go up. So, and, uh, and what we want to know is what over what period of time is that going to happen. That's where the new speculation is going to be. And it could have an effect on house prices. Because if people think this is the last rate reduction, if he gives language to say this is the last rate reduction – then all of a sudden people are going to start saying, well, hang on, that means house prices are going to start to change, um, which means demand will change, which means house prices, people start saying house prices could drop. Could be a good time to go and buy. That's the end of today. I've had a great time as usual. I I, I want to reiterate this uh, YouTube process. Send in your email to me with a link to a YouTube pitch if you want to get on the show and we're going to film you and you're going to pitch to me, you can send that to mb at markboris.com.au or you can put it onto Twitter and I'm, my Twitter handle is at markboris. I'm looking forward to hearing from you about your pitches. I'm looking forward to hearing from you about what you think of the show. I'm looking forward to hearing from you what your questions are to me, what you would like me to answer in the show if I get the chance to do it. So all in all, I've had a good time, had a good show and um, God bless those two Australians. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Boris and find out more at markboris.com.au. Listener.